grateful this morning for all those who helped lead us in worship, from kids to youth to college students and uh, our adults as well. Thank you all. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning, I'll allow our kids, Children's Church age, to be dismissed this morning for Children's Church. And the rest of us will study about being salt and light in this world. On June 24, 2022, the Supreme Court handed down a historic decision in Dobbs versus Jackson, Jackson's Women's Health Organization case, ruling the Constitution does not give a right to abortion. This decision reversed Roe v. Wade, what a pro-life side had sought for 50 years. So your question, or almost 50 years, so your question might be, well, since we live in a post-Roe world, why are we, Dixie Baptist Church, doing Sanctity of Human Life Sunday this day? Well, we may have thought that was the final victory in the pro-life side, but we're recognizing there is still going to be much work to be done as there is a continued push for abortions, as Miss Marianne shared with us, there is... Also, the relaxed um, FDA just in recent weeks decision about the abortion pill and that being also able to distribute, uh, be distributed by mail order. So we still need to observe sanctity of human life. And our theme this morning is in our culture, the church must stand for life from the moment of conception for God's glory and for our society's good. I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, familiar words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this decision from the Supreme Court. It is right. It is proper. We are grateful for it. We pray also for our continued advance for life in our nation. We pray for the church to be salt and light in this world, not because we hate our culture, because we love it and want it's good. And it is good to stand for life from the moment of conception. So we pray, Lord, now you'll help us as we speak. And, and I pray for hurting hearts this morning hurting hearts that may know the gospel of Jesus Christ covers every sin, every one of them, for those who turn to Jesus in faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In early January, a story appeared in the New York Times entitled, When Does Life Begin? And reporter Elizabeth Diaz acknowledged this is a question that goes beyond politics, law, 
and science. That is right. The question, when does life begin, is ultimately a theological question. In our culture, that question has been debated for about 50 years, probably more. Some have answered with different answers. Some have said viability or when the baby can survive outside the womb. That seems very arbitrary depending on uh, opportunity for health care and depending on maybe even geography. Some have said birth. Shockingly, some allow for post-birth. Any other answer than the moment of conception is arbitrary and makes a departure from the biblical answer. Our kids shared that answer. Verse after verse, God is the giver of life. We have heard multiple times from Psalm 139 this morning. God knit us together in the womb. And in verse 16a, your eyes saw my unformed substance. So every moment that we have existed, God has been the one who created and sustained us. And that's from the moment sperm and egg come together. That is human life created in the image of God. So today I want to ask two questions and hopefully answer them. One, why is the church pro-life? I'm going to spend a little less time on that question because I think you know the answer. But the second question is, why is the church's pro-life stance good even for pro-abortion people in our culture? Now that question might sound more tricky. So why are we pro-life? Here's a simple answer. God is God and we are not. God the creator gives life. We creatures receive life. We've read Psalm 139. This psalm shows that God knows everything about us. And in verses 13 through 16 really focus in on the preborn child. Verse 13 has two verbs in it. You formed, you knit me. That doesn't sound like an accidental process, does it? God intentionally, lovingly creates each baby in the womb. And then David just overflows with amazement that God knit him together, not in some detached, impersonal, uncaring way, but just gushes that God specifically made him as he did with his care. And then that overflows in praise in verse 14. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You repeated that this morning in our congregational response. It is impossible to believe Psalm 139 and also think life in the womb is disposable. But what is different about human life? God creates every being, every animal, every tree, all things. We may with grief take our pets to the vet when they become old and have terminal disease, and we may have them euthanized. But we don't do that with grandma. Why is mankind of greater, more inherent value? And for that, we look to the Bible's very first chapter. God wanted us to know from the beginning what is different about humanity. Verses 26 and 27 say, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the, fl- uh, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. Out of all the things God created, only human beings bear his image. But every human being at every stage of development bears God's image. And that is enough for us to say we shouldn't destroy babies, regardless of their location, their race, their stage of development, intellectual ability, and physical health. The Christian worldview from the Bible says all human life is full of dignity from conception to the grave because we're created in God's image. So abortion is a massive issue because of our theology. When human life that's creating God's image is purposely taken in the womb, it's an attack on the creator God himself. He displayed his glory in every human image bearer, and an assault on human life is an onslaught on the glory of God. So I wanted you to have that theological foundation of why we're pro-life. We rooted this in humanity's value from conception as being created in God's image. But we live in a society that rejects our theology often. So should we do what our secular society that's often pro-abortion wants pro-life people to do? Should we just shut up? Should we retreat into our churches and refuse to be a voice culturally for life? I think based on Matthew 5 and I think so many other places in Scripture, I think we should do the opposite. We should engage our culture lovingly with biblical truth. So my second question, why is the church standing for life good in and to and for a pro-abortion culture in response to that new york times article asking when does life begin one physician wrote in and said the question becomes not when does life begin but who lives who dies and who decides such questions are not up for grabs in a just and merciful society and that really is the big question what kind of society are we? What kind of society will we be? I think she had some right questions in that. Or he or she, I don't, I don't even remember which it was. My desire today is to show that we Christians are put in our world to promote God's purposes for our society's good and thriving. Even if the church faces animosity from that culture because of this pro-life position. So I'm arguing that the church does good in our culture and also for our culture. Christianity Day in 2007, they ran a series of interchanges between Douglas Wilson and Christopher Hitchens. And the question they were asking and responding to is this, is Christianity good for the world? Now, Wilson was professor of theology and a minister. You won't be surprised to hear that his answer was yes, Christianity is good for the world. Christopher Hitchens was one of the most outspoken atheists. He has since passed away. But previous to that, he had written a book entitled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now, just from that title, that's not very neutral, is it? 
He's got an agenda that he was pushing. Well, you won't be surprised to learn that he did not think Christianity was good for the world. So what is our case that the church is a positive, not a poisoning influence in our society? And here's the reality. We want good for our society. We don't hate our culture. We want it to thrive. And I think standing for life is a way that we show neighbor love to our society. One is to those in the womb who have no voice as of yet, whose lives we seek to protect. But we also want good for abortion-minded women and men who have to make a decision and who would live with great regret. We also love our neighbors who have sinned in this way and need to hear the gospel of the Savior Jesus who came and went to the cross and died for my sin, your sin, lying, bad language, and the sin of abortion and every other sin. The world that naturally moves away from God's will needs the church to function as a purifying force in this world. And for that, Jesus used salt to illustrate it. Now, this sounds odd to us in some ways because we primarily use salt to flavor food. We had a funeral here on Tuesday, and we had a meal afterward, and uh, we had fried chicken. And the staff got invited down, and I love fried chicken. We were in Arizona for 12 and a half years. We didn't have access to fried chicken as much as we do here. And uh, I just enjoy fried chicken, and I like salt on my fried chicken. If you like salt on your fried chicken, say amen this morning. Well, I've got more amens than anything so far. Well, I had my own personal salt shaker. Somebody at my table poked fun at me for having my own personal salt shaker. I'm okay with that. I was flavoring that chicken like I wanted it. But that wasn't the way salt was primarily used in the ancient world. If you come to my house, you'll find that we have in our house two full-size refrigerators and a stand-up freezer. I don't know if you're aware, but meat's kind of expensive. We find a deal on meat. We can stock up. We can put it in one of those refrigerator freezers. We can have it in a couple of months. We don't think about a refrigerator-less world, but this is the world Jesus was speaking to. The ancient world had no refrigerators, so meat decays fast, and the primary way you preserve food was through salt, rubbing salt in the food or making a solution with salt. So Jesus is saying that salt functions as a preservative, as a purifying influence. And as it does that in terms of meat, church, you function as a purifying influence in our world. And the reality is a society that stamps out life in the womb can't hope to thrive. To rebel against God's will undermines a society's flourishing and causes its destruction, not its good. That's why we can't withdraw our voice. We're salt. We're seeking to preserve. In fact, back in the 5th century, Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. And in it, he's contrasting two different communities on earth. 
There's the city of God or the community of people who know Jesus Christ belong to God. But he contrasts that with the city of man, which is those who don't know Christ and are really opposed to the things of God. He described it this way. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Well, Augustine's writing in the 5th century. Rome fell in 410. And for many Roman people, this was the tragedy of their lifetime. This empire that had endured for centuries had finally ended, and many of the pagan people in Rome blamed the fall of Rome on Christianity. They thought Christianity was the problem. So Augustine is writing his book to correct that idea by showing that it was really the problem in Rome was their rebellion against God and what they really needed was more Christian influence not less Christian influence. But even in that he didn't call for Christians to abandon the world but to be a voice in the world embracing God's values not because we hate the world but because we want good for our society. Now if you're following along in the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. These are verses 13 through 16. If you go back to what precedes this, you get the Beatitudes. This is describing the character of the people of God. They are poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. And this is what people look like that are transformed by the gospel of Christ. And then Jesus begins these verses with, you are the salt of the earth. And that you is emphatic. He's not speaking to the entire world, you. He's speaking to those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have these character traits that he's just explained. You, church, you, you alone are salt. But don't miss to whom you're salt. You are the salt of the earth. You are light of the world. You're not withdrawing from the world. You're not separating from it. You're engaging it as people who have been transformed to be salt and light in it. If we withdraw our witness, society will continue to decay. When Jesus warned about salt, losing its saltiness, he means compromise there. He spoke about the effectiveness of salt as a purifying agent. If it became mixed with all kinds of other things, it would lose its ability to preserve. The church cannot compromise to culture's values and think we're being good for our culture. We've become unnecessary at that point. I think that's why you see the death of so many liberal churches and seminaries. They don't have anything to offer our world because they've adopted or adapted to our world And by that, that's just getting trampled under people's feet. Culture doesn't need that. We, as the church, maintain our saltiness by staying close to Christ, faithful to his word, and resisting that compromise. R. Kent Hughes said this, Jesus was saying, in effect, Humanity without me is a dead body that is rotting and falling apart. And you, my followers, are the salt that must be rubbed into the flesh to halt the decomposition. The church must be rubbed into the world, into its rotting flesh and wounds, so that it might be preserved. 
the presence of such people in the military, in business, in education, in a fraternity or sorority will amazingly elevate the level of living, and their absence will allow unbelievable depths of depravity. Believers, salty believers, are the world's preservatives. Without the church, there would be no purifying influence in our society. We are the ones who say, don't, don't do what is right in your own sight. That's the way of destruction. Christ followers, we are the salt of the earth. Wherever God has planted us, wherever the church exists, we're to be salt there. One ancient example of the church being salt in its community was the elimination of the gladiator games in Rome. Most of the gladiators were slaves or criminals or POWs. Their lives were not valued in that society. They were believed to be expendable. And for 300 plus years, these gladiator games raged. It's estimated that 400,000 gladiators died just in the Colosseum in Rome. And Christians opposed the gladiator games precisely because it treated human life as disposable. And those games eventually stopped, primarily due to the influence of Christians who were standing as salt of the earth, saying all life is valuable. Alvin J. Smith said, It was Christianity's high value of human life together with its belief that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, so that people might have life more abundantly, both here and hereafter, that slowly undermined the gladiatorial contests. Do you hear the church's theology, even 1,700 years ago, saying human life is created in God's image, and it is valuable because of that? It's that same belief that drives our pro-life stance today. So church, you're the salt of the earth. Jesus also uses another metaphor. You're the light of the world. Now catch this. Jesus came as the light of the world. He said he was the light of the world. And then he said to the church, you, we are the light of the world. So our light doesn't come from us. Our light comes from Christ. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So those whom Jesus saves, they are light in the world. On the flip side, those who are apart from Jesus, they're still in darkness. You know, if you wake up in, a, in your room and it's dark in there, you're, you're groping around, trying to feel your way around with no certainty. I think morally that's what we see here. Our society is groping around for moral truth doesn't have a good foundation for it and they need the church as the light of the world four times in three verses that term light is used here and here's the thing about light light can't not shine now, that's not very good grammar it's pretty good theology light can't not shine if light doesn't shine it stops being light right so Jesus used this image of a city on a hill to say, you can't hide it. If you're miles away and you look and there's a city on a hill, you can see its light from a long way away. He then shows how absurd it would be to light a lamp and put it under a basket. The reason you lit the lamp was for it to give light to the house. You don't going to put it in a basket. You, you lit it to shine, so put it on a stand so that it will shine. God saved us. 
to shine. There's not a person in this room that God saved and immediately took you to heaven. There's a stand that you're on to shine. In fact, Philippians 2 tells us this. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why would the world need us to shine? Because it's in darkness, right? And even when our current culture despises us, they need us to shine for Jesus. Well, how, how have we seen light in this world make societal changes? William Wilberforce was a light that shined for the value of human life. He served in British Parliament. By his own admission, he did very little in his first year. But through God's providence, a friend led him to Christ. Because of his newfound Christian faith, he considered withdrawing from Parliament. The Prime Minister asked him to remain. That carries some weight. The Prime Minister asked you to stay. But there was another guy that encouraged him as well. That guy's name was John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace. He spoke with Wilberforce. said, It is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. Wilberforce stayed in Parliament. And in 1787, at the age of 27, God worked in his heart to show him the purpose of his life. He said this, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, by manners, he didn't mean please and thank you. He meant morality in society. But you see that his life work was that, the suppression of the slave trade. And he faced great challenge, often faced a very sick body. But in 1807, the House voted to abolish slavery. But enforcing that brought more battles. It wasn't until July 26, 1833, that the final bill was passed abolishing the slave trade three days before Wilberforce died. His mission to end slavery was fueled by his Christian conviction about the nature of all humanity being created in the image of God, being created equally in his image. That same conviction fuels our pro-life position. So church, shine. Do your good works, not so you'll get the pat on the back, but so that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We go forward, standing with our biblical convictions, not because we hate our society, because we want it's good. And abortion does not lead to thriving, but misery. But we also must be aware that when salt and light goes forward, sometimes our world will not appreciate it. We said our world is in darkness. What is worse is that it loves darkness. And John three nineteen says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And as a result, we may face ridicule and persecution. In fact, immediately preceding Jesus' words here, he says in verses 11 through 12 in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who are before you. The world may not always like our witness. The world may reject us for our witness. But that does not deter us from being salt and light. Either way, we're blessed 
But even as we stand in a culture that will often reject us, we have to always remember, our enemy is not people. Even very pro-abortion people, they are not our enemy. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our enemy is not people, and they reject us. Abortion is a spiritual battle. Keep standing for life and loving people with the gospel. And as we close, I want to say a word to maybe those who are in the room who have sinned in this arena in some way. I want to very clearly, I hope, I hope I've been clear this morning, but I want to also very clearly say, Christ saves every sinner who turns to him in faith. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the beauty of that verse, some of the beauty of it, is I don't see any exceptions in it. There's no exception clause of, but this sin or but that sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This gospel is for all of us sinners. If you're carrying the weight of an abortion sin, if that meant attaining abortion or pushing for an abortion, when Jesus bore God's wrath at the cross, he was paying the punishment for that sin as well. Be comforted in the fact that the reason Christ came was to save sinners. And he didn't come when we were good and cleaned up and had it all together. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do not carry the weight of any sin. Come to Jesus Christ. Jesus took God's wrath for my worst sin and your worst sin. And because Jesus went to the cross, your sin can be forgiven. This morning we began our singing. Our first song was Christ be magnified. One of the ways Christ is gloriously magnified is reconciling sinners to a holy God. Christ is magnified in the saving of sinners because it doesn't come from us and our goodness. It comes from the perfect, completed work of Jesus on the cross. Well, how can we be saved? How can Christ be magnified by saving us? Because of what we're about to see. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So as we go to our time of invitation, I want you to really believe what you're seeing. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you that my worst sins are paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And every sin committed in this room, those listening on Facebook, those listening by way of radio, that sin was also paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that yes, we stand for life.
in our culture. We do good for our culture. We strive for its thriving. But we hold out also the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we plead with people, be reconciled to God. Don't carry the weight of your sin anymore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.